Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garnet. It's Thursday, December 15th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. STAT's Katie Palmer joins us to explain how the explosive popularity of telehealth is putting sensitive patient information into the hands of Facebook, TikTok, and other big tech firms. We also discussed the latest news in the life sciences, including highlights from a big hematology conference, a disastrous biotech IPO, and the downside of being a good quote. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, the COO of STAT. Cancer is always a difficult diagnosis, but we know that for many people diagnosed with blood cancer, there is hope on the horizon. I'm here with Gina Laporte, Vice President, Global Head of Lymphoma and Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia Development at Genentech. Gina, tell us more. There is tremendous hope. Thanks to devoted researchers and clinicians, cancer patients are achieving remission and living longer, and there is more hope for cures. My colleagues and I are so honored to play a role in the continued effort to bring better care to even more people living with blood cancer. For nearly two decades, our scientists have been studying and developing new approaches to improve initial treatment, address resistance and relapse, improve quality of life, and ultimately help people extend remissions and live longer. Thanks, Gina. Listeners, for more on Genentech's work in blood cancers, visit gene.com slash hematology. That's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash hematology. So, Adam and Damien, I heard that you had a, um, a fun time in New Orleans and a celebrity sighting. Tell me more about what happened. Yeah, Damien and I spent uh, a long weekend uh, at the American Society of Hematology annual meeting in New Orleans. Uh, we watched some soccer, Damien, <laughs> World Cup, and we also we also watched data presentations as well. Which was more exciting? The soccer. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest; it was the soccer. Um, but yes, but you mentioned you mentioned celebrity sighting, and we should say that um, you know this is one of those things. Uh, Taylor Swift, who I think everybody knows as the globally famous uh, singer-songwriter, she uh, she was in New Orleans at the same time as the Ash Meeting, uh, ended up at uh, Preservation Hall watching jazz on Saturday night, which happened to also be uh, the site or venue for a Ash-related party that was sponsored by the healthcare investment bank, BTIG. And there was a lot of buzz over the weekend about, you know, biotech, healthcare, Wall Street types hanging out at Preservation Hall. And there was Taylor Swift. It is kind of a telling detail of the like parasitic effects that conferences have on American cities that Preservation Hall, perhaps one of the most storied music venues in this country, also happened to be the site of a healthcare banker sponsored meeting. Um, but I guess that's neither here nor there. Uh, we should like talk about the data. <laughs> <laughs> So did you guys learn anything aside from being starstruck by by T-Swift? 
I think it was, a, you know, it was a fairly incremental meeting, and I don't want to get into the weeds of the data and the stories that we wrote. You can go to our website. You can we we wrote a lot of stories, and and our colleague Angus Chen was there also. He wrote a lot of stories. I do want to bring up one issue that I think is kind of it's a little bit of a problem. I feel like for the industry, and that is we have this trend of sort of this incremental dribbling out of clinical data, and where we're seeing it. We're seeing a lot of it now, and we saw it a lot at Ash, is with companies that are developing these uh, off-the-shelf cell therapies for various types of blood cancer. Uh, and, we, and, and I think you guys will recognize the sort of the phenomenon that I'm talking about is where, you know, there's some update to some early stage study where there's like another three patients worth of data, um, just a little bit more of follow-up. And we get this, you know, this sort of, like I said, the sort of dribbling out. And it's so difficult to interpret those data. Um, the numbers are so small that, you know, one response one way or the other, or one patient who relapses one way or the other, really swings the interpretation of the data. And we're seeing more and more of this. And I, I just, I feel like it's a problem for the industry because, you know, we've sort of set these expe expectations that there's going to be this sort of constant uh, you know, data flow. And, you know, a lot of it is it's it's these companies are under pressure. They're under pressure from, uh, you know, their investigators who want to present at meetings like Ash. They're under pressure from their investors, their shareholders, the hedge funds who own the stock who need like, quote unquote, trading catalysts. Um, but I just I feel like it doesn't do justice to the companies developing these because you just you never sort of get a a large enough data set to really kind of make any sort of meaningful interpretation. I agree with that. And I think one thing that stood out at Ash is that to the clinicians who may one day be prescribing these ther therapies to people with blood cancer, it is likewise frustrating and kind of bewildering to have a reporter like me in their face saying, what do you make of this abstract? And what I'm asking them to comment on is, like you said, data from three patients in a single arm study with 12 months of follow-up in a disease that is known for, you know, really, really common relapses. And I'm saying, you know, the complete response rate was X percent over this many months. What does that mean for this therapy? Would you prescribe this? And all these other pushy questions and these people who do this for a living and who care for their patients and who want, as I guess we all do, as I suppose we all do, um, or I hope we all do, <laughs> uh, better treatments for some of these very serious diseases. These are, you know, these drugs are often tested in as a last line of therapy for people with recurring uh, life-threatening blood cancers. But everybody's just dealing with these small numbers kind of being broadcast across presentations. And yeah, I, I agree with you. And there, there, is a, there is a sense that some sort of retrenchment, or if we could all just get together and maybe set a standard for what kind of evidence one needs to have before entering this conversation, which would lead to maybe talking about what kind of evidence one needs to have when applying for accelerated FDA approval, which a lot of the treatments we saw this weekend will soon do, and based on precedent, will likely win, thus just forcing the issue on these same clinicians and patients in the months and years to come when they have to make treatment decisions based upon these often kind of confusing data. Yeah, I totally agree, Damien. And so biotech, you have a data dribbling problem, and I think you need to fix it. But let's I don't move know, on. Adam, I, I do have to jump in here for a second. Like what you're describing seems like an inherent, I mean, uh, friction between being a drug developer, but also being a 
publicly traded company and that the nature of being on like being a stock and being a stock market, you know, your your value is going up by news. And as a de- as a drug company, like it's like you can't just wait, you know, a, a drug stock if it was just waiting every like 18 months to release data. That wouldn't feed into the market. It feels like a very no. Like- I think I think that's a that I think that's an issue. I think you're right in that you know it's part of the sort of market dynamics and and kind of the way the capital markets and particularly when it comes to publicly traded companies operate these days. You're right. Is that you know that unfortunately that they sort of have to they have to sort of get into that trap of releasing data because it's the way you create value for the stock for the company, the way you raise more money. Um, I just, you know, I, 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 I wish there was sort of some way of doing that without, you know, sort of ha- getting into this trap like that Damien described where literally, you know, it's like it's tiny amounts of data that just and it's so hard to interpret. And I think, again, like for some companies, you know, they do, you know, we may be making we may be sort of misinterpreting or we may be overanalyzing results based on such small numbers. But it's but it's basically all we have. And so it's very or or that investors have. So it's very difficult. Anyway, I, yeah. you know, I think this is a topic that we probably can talk on and on about. <laughs> um, I wanted to. But I did want to move on, Allison. And, uh, you know, because we you know, we've got one of the themes we've talked about for a long time here is sort of the dearth of M&A or big M&A uh, in biotech this year. But uh, that uh, that trend changed uh, this week. Uh, a big deal. Tell us about it. Yeah. So we finally saw. And I say finally, these talks had been in existence for what we, you know, the public kind of knew about them for a matter of a week or two. Um, Amgen is buying Horizon Therapeutics, the former specialty pharma company um, that Amgen, uh, Sanofi, and uh, Janssen had all been interested in acquiring. You know, news of these talks kind of emerged uh, within the last few weeks, as I said. billion on this deal, which makes it the biggest deal of this year and the biggest deal, honestly, that this industry has seen in in quite a while. Um, Quite a note to go out on, especially like leading into JP Morgan kind of changes the M&A tone a bit. And then we also saw Takeda um, announce that it was going to be paying $4 billion plus some milestones for a um, anti-inflammatory drug candidate from Nimbus Therapeutics. So two big back-to-back deals this week. Yeah, it's interesting. The they feel almost like narratively bifurcated because the going into 2022. I know we've spoken about this endlessly, but the the hoping and praying was that the decline in valuations for biotech companies would lead to more larger pharmaceutical companies wanting to buy them, and that at least through 11.5 months of the year, did not materialize. The Amgen deal for Horizon is interesting because it actually, you know, arguably could be seen as kind of a negative signal toward at least that narrative because Horizon is not a plucky biotech company that recently went public and whose, you know, venture backers are still on the line. It's been around for quite a long time. As you mentioned, it was in specialty pharma for a while until that became sort of an industry epithet. And then remade itself to some extent as a little bit of a roll-up, which I think is also still an epithet, so maybe I should find a better word, but it's too late now. Um, and then Amgen bought it because it is throwing off lots of cash. It has a, lot, a very successful drug. This is a very like business transaction rather than a sort of hopes and dreams pipeline transaction is how it seems to me. And I think is the justification or rather the explanation that, that the market has, Amgen has 
medicines that will soon face competition. Its balance sheet is thus under pressure in the years to come. And so this deal makes sense. But then, like the narrative bifurcation, Takeda buying Nimbus, Takeda also a company, or buying, excuse me, Nimbus's drug, Takeda also a company that will soon face competition for some of its top selling products. But the Nimbus product is not yet approved. There is apparently very promising mid-stage data, which we've heard described in a press release, but have not seen. Presumably Takeda has seen it and was willing to pay $4 billion upfront for it, which as far as I can tell is the largest amount of money that anyone has ever paid for a drug that is not yet FDA approved. So arguably the Takeda deal, even though it's a smaller dollar amount, is more encouraging narratively to like biotech world because it suggests that venture-backed companies can create things that register as valuable to the very cash-rich pharmaceutical companies, and perhaps the next $4 billion deal could be your favorite struggling biotech firm. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on, Damien. Um, the Horizon acquisition, I like personally took me by surprise when the word came out that not only Amgen but two other companies were interested in buying Horizon. And the argument has been made that, you know, they've got this, you know, portfolio of rare disease drugs that Horizon has like acquired and kind of built up to um, over the last, you know, five, six years um, that, you know, drug makers are finding really interesting. Obviously, we've seen some, you know, big rare disease acquisitions in the last couple of years with Alexion and AstraZeneca and Takeda and Shire. But it doesn't narratively fit in, to your point, Damien, you know, with this like plucky biotech, you know, the venture backed companies creating value like the Takeda Nimbus deal does. So, so gang, speaking of venture-backed companies, uh, Third Harmonic Bio uh, is one such uh, company that went public in September. Obviously, this has been a bad year for IPOs, just like it's been not a great year for M&A. Um, so I think Third Harmonic was sort of seen as maybe a sign of hope that they were able to go public in September. Alas, they blew up today being Thursday, the day we recorded this podcast, uh, the company announced this morning that its its lead drug, its only drug in its research pipeline uh, is being discontinued for, I guess, well, I guess for the technically for the lead indication because of some liver toxicity, liver safety issues that have been picked up uh, in clinical trials. Yeah, that's, that's quite a blow. I mean, Third Harmonic was one of a handful of IPOs this year. And I remember... In September, when it went public, there was kind of like a brief like fluttering of maybe maybe this is hope for the IPO market didn't really materialize. And I think that this is kind of a uh, a down note for that little fluttering of hope. Um, I was actually just talking to, a, you know, a venture capitalist earlier this week and was like, so how are you feeling about IPOs in 2023? And his tone had, you know, hadn't changed in the slightest. <laughs> um, it was like, nope. IPO is still still not feeling um, like that's a, a, a significant option for companies, um, except in you know very rare cases. So tough news. It's interesting to look at Third Harmonic as kind of an object lesson of where we're at, because the at, at the height of the last boom, which peaked, I guess, you know, as recently as like late 2020, when companies were going public so easily and raising so much money, they tended to be the sort of hopes and dreams platform companies with preclinical pipelines and science projects that could transform every cell into something or other. There was always a very 
very attractive, very kind of futuristic tone to it. Everything crashed and Third Harmonic emerging as this trial balloon, I guess, for whether IPOs could return was, by contrast, really, really chastened in terms of its ambitions. It had this one drug. Its S1 used the phrase, a pipeline and a pill, which I don't think I had seen since like 2013. Um, The drug was pointed at a known target, so it would have competition, but theoretically a validated target. And even then, it seemed like a struggle for the company to get out, as as so few companies had been able to do, IPO-wise. And then, yet here we are, and it blew up. So in many ways, the virtues it seemed to have, which is you know a single asset company with a defined strategy and a you know easy go to market phase two three thing, is now kind of counting against it because that drug being functionally discontinued means they're falling back on drug discovery. And so you know I'm not going to read livestock prices on a podcast that will be published hours after we record it, um, but their stock is down quite a bit, as you would imagine. And I imagine it'll be down even more. Uh, whenever people listen to this. So I don't really know what the lesson is here. You know, biotech has tried it the expansive way. Companies like like Sauna we've spoken about have lost the vast majority of the value they once had and have embarked upon layoffs. And then biotech has tried it the austere way in the form of third harmonic bio. And we're seeing how that's playing out. Biotech is hard, Damien. That's the lesson. <laughs> biotech is hard. Uh, let's end this Chatty Cathy segment with what we have been calling the George problem. Damien, explain. Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, thankfully, I can rely on uh, real audio here to help tell the story. But George Yankopoulos, the co-founder and chief scientific officer of Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, has for quite a long time, uh, with great justification, been perceived as just a good quote, a guy that you want to ring up if you're writing a story about the drug industry or the path of science, and um, you know, more relevant to this, a really good person to have at your event. He and Len Schliefer, his colleague, the CEO of Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, have built this sort of aura, these personas, as, as being kind of iconoclasts in, in the industry that they're part of, as being willing to call out their peers, which is relatively rare, uh, and especially in, in years past, extremely rare, in the pharmaceutical industry, and as being you know, people with a clarity of thought, unafraid to speak their minds, Yada, yada, yada. Well, <laughs> and sometimes that goes too far. How getting it out there. You can't deliver a vaccine until you have a vaccine. You can't deliver a treatment until you have it. So these are secondary problems. I'm sorry, but think about how ludicrous your point is. What are we going to do when we get a cure for Alzheimer's? Please, God, society, give us a cure for Alzheimer's. And that's going to depend on what? What I was talking about before. We have to up our game in terms of investing in innovation. All right, all right, but let's... So this is last week. Um, So it's kind of old, but I think one of the reasons we wanted to talk about it is it keeps coming up in conversation with people um, in and around biotech. This is last week at the Milken Conference in which uh, Georgian Kopoulos is part of a panel um, that is moderated by Bertha Coombs of CNBC, who's been covering this world for quite a long time. And she brings up the reasonable uh, question that's been debated for a long time. That's basically, we want good drugs. When those good drugs are expensive, it creates societal problems because there's a finite amount of money in the world. And in this case, the topic is Alzheimer's disease. So she kind of brings that up as like, if we had a cure for Alzheimer's, but it costs a million dollars, what would we do? And he cuts her off to just say like, you are so off base right now. I think what strikes me, first, let's just kind of talk about uh, George's tone. George, George, it's just, he's rude. And he's talking over Bertha Coombs, who 
Bertha Coombs asked a perfectly legitimate, well-informed question. And just, I don't know, I don't understand why George feels like he can do this. Um, but he he just, you know, he literally just basically calls her question ludicrous. And, you know, he he's shouting over her and just dismissing this very important point that I think that she's making. I mean, if he did it, if he disagreed, he could do it in another way. It's an attitude like this that I feel exemplifies why the biotech and pharma industries have failed to kind of come to the table and like talk about drug pricing as something that is an unavoidable, not only topic of conversation, but as we saw, we've seen with the Inflation Reduction Act, like something that could have a consequence to their business and something that they should proactively address. You guys are the drug developers, and this is what you're caught, you know, charging for these drugs. And how is that? How are you expecting society to pay for that? And him dismissing it entirely, I feel like it exemplifies a larger problem within the industry. That I I would imagine that George is not the only person with an attitude of in that vein. Maybe the only person who would go <laughs> on stage <laughs> and express it. Yeah. I mean, Damien, what did you think about the substance of what George was saying, you know, beyond just his boorishness? Right. Yeah. If you were to boil down his actual affect, he would be saying, if we nickel and dime every incremental advance in something as serious as Alzheimer's disease, then we will never get to the great big advance that we all would like, which is a truly meaningful or even curative medicine uh, for Alzheimer's, which is both a reasonable point and and not a novel one. And I'm, that's not a criticism. I'm just saying, you know, that we've heard that. What really, <laughs> the reason that we're talking about this now and that it's come up so often in the week since it happened is his tone. And I think, you know, Allison, to your point about how this is a, his, his beliefs or his thoughts on this are probably widely held throughout the drug industry. The reaction that they got from the crowd is probably a oh, good yeah. barometer, which is to say he got booed. And this is not, he's not speaking before, um, what you might call like polite company or like, you know, a mixed bag of people. This is at the Milken conference, which is, well, it's named for, I get people can Google Michael Milken and, and, you know, your mileage may vary. This is not exactly Greenpeace, let's say, in terms of yeah, its this attendance. Yeah, this is his people. This is George's yeah, exactly. people at, who are sitting in the audience of this conference. And right. they and, and are booing George. <laughs> They, 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 they saw his, you know, they watched him do this and they booed him, which is remarkable. And so I've been thinking about sort of the George of it all, kind of what I was saying before about this persona of being an iconoclast, being a good quote. And I wonder, to some extent, has the, can the Falcon hear the Falconer at this point have, and maybe we, I uh, bear some responsibility for this because we have elevated George and people like him, to a certain stature where where being a good quote means you'll get called for a quote when something is maybe outside your expertise or in this case, maybe a little outside your temperament. I have to assume that, you know, there's an acknowledgement internally, hopefully internally, uh, you know, in George's inner circle that, that this didn't go great. And maybe there should be a conversation about, you know, I don't, I don't even know really what, just something a little chastening, something, a reminder that what resonates like when George stop being an a-hole like that would be well, a good that would be a good well, admonishment right the tone that, that that works and resonates when you are a person whose net worth is exceeds one billion dollars and you uh 
have a lot of influence at a very influential company, which you co-founded, the things that you say that people agree with in those circles, when you expose them to a broader circle and they elicit booze, one would hope that there's some introspection that would follow. Think about this all-too-real scenario in the digital age. You're suffering from migraines, or you're having issues with your mental health or substance use. You want help, so you open your computer and you visit the website of a telehealth company. Once on the site, you're presented with a standard intake form asking you specific personal questions about your condition, the medicines that you take, uh, how much alcohol or opioids do you consume? Are you self-harming? From there, the telehealth company connects you with a provider who is licensed to prescribe medicines. But what's not widely known by patients seeking this help is that the delicate, intimate, and very sensitive information about drug use or self-harm that they provide to telehealth companies is often being shared with tech giants like Facebook and Google. A joint investigation by stat reporter Katie Palmer and two journalists from The Markup examined 50 direct-to-consumer telehealth companies and found that this data sharing is common, raising serious questions about healthcare privacy issues and unfair business practices. Katie joins us now to discuss her investigation in more detail. Katie, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much. Hi, everyone. Hey, Katie. So based on your reporting, you say that the the quick online access to medications provided by telehealth companies often comes with a hidden cost for patients. So tell us about the scope of this data sharing problem, who's doing it, and where are these data going? Yeah, I mean, pretty much every company that we looked at in the 50 was sending data of one kind or another. Um, they were all, all those 49 were sending the URLs you visited and your IP address to at least one of these big tech platforms, Facebook, Google, TikTok, Pinterest, LinkedIn. Uh, it seems like every social media giant has this sort of third party ad tracking um, pixel or, tr- or tracker that can be installed these days. And they enable ads to be retargeted to you. And then half of them were sending some form of checkout or shopping cart information that indicates the type of treatment you might be seeking, especially because the companies we were looking at were often condition-specific. They were focused on mental health or substance use or migraines or reproductive health. And then 13 of those 50 companies were actually sending those detailed answers that you described, those health-related questions that can get into the nitty-gritty of your medical history and prescriptions. So I think we've all become, not we've all, but many of us have become a little numb to this notion that our privacy is kind of ethereal when we do things on the internet and that our shopping habits or browsing habits are probably cataloged somewhere that would make us uncomfortable if we were aware of. But this feels like an escalation of that because of the sensitivity of the information that people are providing to um, the telehealth companies that you just mentioned. What are the risks that exist, the specific risks or issues that arise from sharing these kind of data with these third parties? Yeah. I mean, this this tracking is now so widespread that we all are a little bit numb to it and you expect it to happen to a certain degree. Um, and it also makes it, because it's wide, so, so widespread, it makes it tough to pin down the concrete harms that may have already occurred. But the things that we heard about that people were most worried about were... Um, essentially the ability to retarget health-related ads, you know, to vulnerable patients who are, you know, in seek of solutions for their very real health needs, 
who may be targeted ads for things that don't work or aren't the right fit for them. Um, and then depending on how the recipients of those data are are handling it, you worry a little bit about where that data could go in the long term. It enters this black box potentially of you know, data brokers who can reuse and reformat that data in many different ways that could be especially damaging to, say, somebody with a substance use disorder. Um, and it could impact their life in a really substantial way. With the sheer scope of this, it, it seems somewhat daunting. T- can you tell us how you and the reporters at The Markup set out to tackle this story and, and find particular instances where this patient data was being shared? Um, were there any that came up? I started being interested in this when I used a tool created by the Markup team called Blacklight, which allows you to enter the URL of any website and just see at a high level what kind of trackers exist on it. I plugged in a few of the direct-to-consumer telehealth companies that I've been covering um, just to get a feel, and the number of trackers was especially high, higher than average across a lot of the consumer shopping websites that you expect to see those trackers on. So that gave me an inkling that something was going on here, and then I connected with the team, and they taught me about how to dive deeper and understand the payloads, um, the data that is actually being sent by those trackers. Um, I also had a sense from my previous reporting that these quiz intake answers were happening before the point of provider care in a way that you know might not subject them to the same protections that you would expect from a traditional provider appointment. Um, so that was another reason we wanted to dive in and look carefully. So is there an example, uh, you know, you, look, you look, said you looked at 50 telehealth companies. Give us an example of, of what you found on one of them. So one of them uh, is for a migraine company called Cove. Um, it's run by 30 Madison, which owns a few different of these direct-to-consumer brands focused on different health needs. And on this one, we found the answers to those specific questions about your migraine, you know, symptoms, essentially. And then at the tail end, we also found the prescriptions that were being put into your cart, um, including the name of the prescription, the dose, the you know the number of pills in the bottle. Uh, it was really quite extensive. The the data we found being shared in that specific case, I believe it was being sent to Facebook and Google. So speaking of which, the recipients of these data, the likes of Facebook, Google, TikTok, LinkedIn, etc. What did they say when you asked about this whole phenomenon of data sharing and, and presented your findings to them? Yeah, on the whole, the the tech companies, the big tech companies receiving the data, um, were very clear to point out that they have policies in place saying these these customers, these business partners are not supposed to send us sensitive data. Um, Facebook in particular has you know set up an algorithm that is supposed to filter out that kind of information as an extra layer of protection. Um, so a little bit of buck passing to to the the companies sending in the data. However, a few of the companies that responded, um, including Pinterest and Snap, uh, said that they were going to take some remedial action (laughs) against uh, the companies that were sharing these data. And then the telehealth companies, by and large, also said, you know, this data sharing is within the scope of our privacy practices um, because of that disconnect between the telehealth company and the providers. Um, Although a few of them, including... Uh, work it, which is a substance use company that we led the story with, said that they were changing their tracking policies 
not policies, but changing their use of trackers in specific or or high-level ways. I want to circle back to something that you said earlier about when exactly this information is collected, you know, before a patient is actually um, connected to a provider through these telehealth companies. How does this practice interplay with HIPAA? Is anything that these companies are doing violating HIPAA or the other laws that protect against the sharing of sensitive medical information? Yeah, and that's that is the question, and it's one that you know, a lot of our sources that we reached out to weren't even willing to weigh in on based on the level of detail provided in the privacy policies. Um, basically, HIPAA would, in many of these cases, protect the information that you shared with your online doctor. But because these telehealth companies are technically facilitators, they are not covered by HIPAA in the same way. They may be regulated in some cases, depending on their specific business relationship with those providers um, and the specific ways that the data the telehealth companies are uh, collecting share that data and use that data on behalf of the provider group. Um, But basically, it's extremely difficult for a consumer from the outside to pick apart exactly which data the telehealth companies are obligated to protect before that point of transfer from the from the switch between being a user slash consumer to being a patient. So Katie, I wonder, has there been a response uh, to your reporting, you know, any effort to tighten these privacy protections or or maybe even stop the sharing of this kind of information? Yeah. So we did get those, you know, certain marginal responses from some of the tech companies and some of the telehealth companies to change their uh, individual tracking practices and the data that they accept. Beyond that, I think you know, a substantial response is going to take a lot higher level action. You know, one of our sources talked about the the problem with leaving this solution to individual companies or to individual patients. You know, we're not going to fix all of the privacy issues created by this third-party tracking ecosystem that we're living in um, with a whack-a-mole approach. We need something at a higher level to make, you know, health privacy regulations that fit this modern era of healthcare. Right now, we're trying to make HIPAA apply to something that it was not built for. Katie, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And that does it for another episode of the Read Out Loud. Before we get to the rest of the outro, I want to extend a huge thanks to Allison DeAngelis, who has stepped in over the last six months as a co-host of this podcast. And she's done a remarkably wonderful job and it's been a great talker with us. So Allison, thank you so much for, for for being with us. Thank you. No, it was a pleasure to do it. I am so glad that I can put a wonderful talker, you know, on my LinkedIn <laughs> bio now. So anytime that you guys want to have me back, you know, just holler. Absolutely. We will do that. And uh, as a housekeeping note, uh, we, you know, we're around uh, this week and next week, and then we're going to be off for the week between Christmas and New Year's. And then uh, the podcast episode of, I guess, the first one of 2023, Uh, Meg Terrell, our co-host, CNBC reporter, will be back with us. And I did speak to her, and she is really looking forward to getting back to podcasting with us. And we are really looking forward to having her back. In the meantime, 
Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode and what you didn't like and what sort of advice you might give George Yankopoulos. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week. Except I won't. <laughs> 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 <laughs>